Today we are going to jump into the message with the remaining time that we have uh, together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, and we are in week 5 of our Gospel According to Mark series. This is a 12-week long series, and the first four weeks, if you recall, the first week was about repentance and following Jesus, so this turning from the ways that we walk in and following in the ways of Jesus Next week, we talked about eating and drinking with people. Is that this, this connection that Jesus had uh, with individuals? Kai, the third week, talked about the faith of a mustard seed, how these small little mustard seeds grow into these great plants, and how this little bit of faith transforms our world and transforms the way we walk through it. And then last week, we talked about belief in the promises of God, how this woman with a bleeding issue, she believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and she went to Jesus in faith, and how her world was transformed along with Jairus. And so we talked about those. This week, I'm going to be sharing, like I said, from Mark chapter 6. And then next week, I'll be sharing another message. And then the final six weeks, uh, I will not be here. Uh, I'm going to be stepping into my sabbatical uh, following next Sunday. So I'll be here next Sunday and sharing the message. And then that Monday, I begin my five-week sabbatical. Uh, But you're going to be in great hands. Uh, John and Nick and Pastor Gerton and Dave Smith are going to be taking you through the sermons And then during the week, uh, you've got great care from the staff and the deacons. And so uh, with this uh, sabbatical that I'll be taking, I'm really thankful for that. As five years ago when I stepped into this role as a lead pastor, and after my fifth year, I had the opportunity of taking five weeks of rest and renewal and refreshing. And that's exactly my prayer, um, is that this is that time and that it is rest and renewal and refreshment. And uh, like I said, you're in great hands. Um, and I'm going to miss you more than you'll miss me, uh, but you guys will be fine. Nick's shaking his head. He's going to miss me. So, uh, uh, but uh, I will be back. I, I will tell you that. So I'll be back um, and, uh, and just thankful for this opportunity. And it's just been great to see how God's been lining some things up for uh, family and myself in this time here. And so today, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the call and the cost of discipleship. Discipleship, following Jesus, becoming like Jesus. And up until this point until in Mark, we have seen Jesus say, come, come and follow me, learn from me, be with me, watch what I do. And now what he's going to do is he's going to send. He's going to send. He's saying from this coming model to this going model. And this is significant. This is a, a great change in the ministry and the intention that Jesus has, not just to keep it to himself, but to multiply the ministry, just like we're called as followers of Jesus to multiply the ministry. What you just saw here with Melinda is this multiplication of ministry, the empowering of the body. And so let's look at Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. It says this, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. I want us to note right there the word authority. Jesus gave them authority. It was not their own authority. It was not a title. It was not anything besides the authority that Jesus gave to them. And so what, even what just happened here is that this is not Chris giving authority. This is the Spirit of God giving power and authority through his Spirit is this multiplying effect that we serve, I serve under the authority of the Father God. We, you serve in the ministry. You serve daily the authority and the power that God gives to you. And this is something that Jesus would often tell people, that the authority came from the Father and he would send them out. In Matthew 28, what is known as the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said, from the Father. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus is sending out, but saying, hey, you're not going alone. Remember all authority, I'm giving that to you, but I'm still with you. And so he's been saying that, he said that 2,000 years ago to the disciples there. It is something that has been given to disciples, followers of Jesus the last 2,000, and also us today, that we're called to make disciples. Yes, be a disciple who makes disciples. This is by baptizing, this is by teaching to obey, and again, this promise that he will be with us. So here Jesus is sending them out in Mark chapter 6, and in verse 8, it says this, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I find these missionary instructions really intriguing. He's basically saying, hey, travel light so you're not burdened. Last time we traveled, I took a backpack, and that was it. It was so nice. We didn't check any bags when we flew. Like, we just had our bags in the plane with us. It was so nice that we, were, we traveled light, and we could move about the city in an easy way. So we weren't burdened, and Jesus is saying in the same way, just travel light. Don't be burdened by stuff. The more stuff we have, the more we have to care for. He's also saying, trust God for the provision along the way. Saying there's going to be people that are going to meet your needs. Just go to them and stay. Where you're welcome, stay. And just don't let anything get in the way either. Stay focused on the mission. That last part about shaking the dust off your feet. As I thought about this and reflected on this, I think in a way Jesus was saying, keep your heart open is that there's going to be people who stand against you. There's going to be people who say things against you. There's going to be people who don't like you. They don't like your method. They don't like your style. Whatever it is, keep your heart open. And continue to stay on mission. Stay focused. Don't let your heart become jaded or bitter. Stay focused. Mark 6, 12, it says this. And they went out and they preached that people should repent. And this is the same today, is that our message should be centralized around the gospel. And the message that Jesus went forth with, John the Baptist went forth, is this message of repentance. And to repent is the word metaneo, which means like this change, this turning. And it's a confessional change that is reflected in our attitudes and our actions and our behaviors. It's this turning from sin. And when we turn from sin, we're changed. Not because of what we did, because we're trying to be a better person or we're trying to work hard or do Jesus-y things, but rather it's a change of heart, this repentance. It's a change of heart that is reflected in our behavior. Louis Burkhoff, he's a theologian, he described repentance as total surrender that involves the intellect, the emotion, and the will. And he broke it down this way in three different ways here. First, intellectually, this is what he said. This is a, a change of view, a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness. 
It is this change of view, this idea that I have sinned and I am a sinner. I have sinned and I am a sinner. This intellectual element. Then the emotional part he talks about as a change of feeling, manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against God. God's a holy God. So not only do I recognize that there's sin, that I'm a sinner, but I feel this like, oh, I have sinned against a holy God. I need to repent. And the third part he talks about is the will or volitionally, is a change of purpose, an inward turning away from sin and a disposition to seek pardon and cleansing. So not only have I sinned and I am a sinner, not only do I feel the impact of my sin, but I can't do anything about it, but there is a savior who can, a savior to rescue me from my sin. This is repentance, this turning from sin and turning toward Christ. I was a sinner, saved by grace because of what Jesus did on the cross, his atoning work on the cross, his payment for my sin. That Jesus not only died for my sin and was buried, but he arose and that I respond in faith to Jesus. In Acts, repentance is said like this, repent then, this is the direction. Repent then and turn to God. Again, this repent and turn, repent and turn. In Acts 3.19, it says, so that your sins may be wiped out. I love that. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. <laughs> that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I have to say some of the most anxious or like grief-stricken time or just where I felt uneasy was when there was sin just sitting in my life. When I wasn't willing to repent of that sin, when I wasn't willing to change that. I love this. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Again, total surrender and total commitment to the way of God. And what is the result? In verse 13, this is what happened to the disciples. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now skip ahead to verse 30. Let's ignore the verses between there right now. Verse 30, because this is connected to it, even though your Bible may have a heading in there. It says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Jesus trained them, come to me, follow me, watch me. Now go do what I've been doing and so they go, and they're casting out demons, and they're anointing people, and there's healing, and people are turning to Jesus. And they come back to Jesus, and they celebrate. Like when your kid learns how to ride a bike or swim or walk, you're like, yes, this is awesome. We've been working on this. And I imagine this was the scene that was happening, this celebration. And there was encouragement and motivation. And when we read a passage where Jesus sends the 12 out, and people repent, and people are healed, and then he comes back and talks about all that's going on. This is motivating to be sent into the world. This call of repentance, this call of healing, this call of salvation. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. It's what we're supposed to be doing here and throughout the week. Right? This is, this is awesome. But Mark did something that I find very odd. He put a story in the middle of the celebration. 
Why? Why did he talk about sending the 12 out and all the work he did and then talk about how they reported back to Jesus? Why is verse 14, verses 14 through 29 there? Why is there a story of the murder of John the Baptist in the middle? This forerunner of Jesus, this person who, who made a way for Jesus to come. Why does Mark put it there? Well, let's read the story. Starting in verse 14. King Herod heard about this, all that the disciples had been doing. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work with him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like the one the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So Jesus and his disciples were making all sorts of news. People heard about what was going on. Herod heard about it. And he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, who he had beheaded, or Elijah or some other prophet. And he's getting nervous because this Jesus is doing some really amazing things. And what happens next is a flashback. This is a story that goes back before this has happened in verse 17. And I want to give you some framing before we get to verse 17. Is that the Herod we talk about is the son of Herod the Great. This is the Herod that we hear about in Jesus' birth narrative that's trying to kill Jesus and kills many other baby boys. So the son of this Herod is the Herod we have in the story. This King Herod is referred to in verse 14. This Herod is also the Herod that we hear about in Jesus' trial, that Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, this Herod, and then Herod's like, yeah, send him back to Pilate. And he goes back to Pilate. But Herod was not a king. Although verse 14 says king, this is a mockery that Mark puts this in there. The readers of Mark would be like, ha, ha, he called him king. He wasn't king, but he acted like a king, and he tried to be king. He was actually a tetrarch, meaning a ruler over a small region. He had no kingdom, and he was not a king. He was a ruler, and he was not a very well-liked tetrarch either. So let's read this, verse 17, this flashback. For Herod himself had been given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who he had married. Complicated family issues there. It only gets worse. Oh, hang on. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful that you have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John, because John called them out, and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod's like, I don't know what this guy's talking about, but he's intriguing. I don't like the fact that he's calling, you know, my, my intense family situations out. Uh, but, but here we are, that Herod's wife, Herodias, does not like John the Baptist for the sin that he called out. And there are massive family issues. Here, let's look at this image here, and you're going to see it better on the large screen. Um, so this is... Um, this is Herod's family. So we start here at the top of Herod the Great. This is the one that was trying to kill Jesus when he was a baby. And the blue lines are quote-unquote clean lines, and then the orange lines are lines of incestuous relationships. So Herod the Great married Salome, who was his sister. All right? They had Bernice. Herod's other wife had Astrisobilis. I had this earlier. Astrisobilis, we'll just call him that, who had 
Herodias. This is the person in the story that does not like John. So here we go. We got Herod Philip, who first married Herodias. That ended in divorce. But then we've got Herod Antipas. This is the Herod we're talking about in the story, who remarried Herodias. And this is what John is calling out. So you have a very close family. Can we call them close? Um, so, so this is a mess, to say the least. And John the Baptist is like, no, right? Say no. And here we go. Let's, let's go back to the story. We're going to come back to this in just a minute. Verse 21. It says, finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. <clears throat> when his daughter, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. This is not a ballet dance. This is not a tap dance. This is not even a TikTok dance. All right. This is a dance that, quote unquote, pleased the men that were there. So let's, let's go back to that image. Can we go back to that image one more time? I think that's the next slide. So this is the daughter of Herodias and uh, Herod Philip. So here's Herod that we're talking about in the story. There's the dance and this unnamed daughter. So this unnamed daughter is his stepdaughter and his niece, and scholars believe that she was 12. I just feel so wrong even talking about this, right? This is a mess that's going on. And in verse 22, it continues on. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Remind you, he does not have a kingdom. And he's offering this. So in verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with a request, I want to give I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, <clears throat> beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. The story gets even messier. Like, it's just, just so disturbing. And hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And this is just a horrible story. And remember that we were just talking about how Jesus sent the 12 out to minister, and they were doing all sorts of great works like Jesus was, and, and how in verse 30 they came back and they talked about what was going on. But right in the middle of this is this sobering story of death and destruction and sin and chaos and mess that John was in the middle of. So why did Mark do this? Why did Mark insert this story? Well, I believe there's really two anthems or two songs that we live by as human beings. The first anthem can really be summed up in the final words of a really famous poem called Invictus. And maybe you've not read the whole poem or maybe you've not heard the title, but maybe you've heard this last line in the poem Invictus uh, written by William Ernest Henley. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Maybe you've heard that before. I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. Talk about the most pride-filled statement that could possibly be there. My will, my way, my right, 
my freedom, my truth, my whatever. That's me at the center of my world. This is an anthem that we sing. Or we sing the second anthem, which is found a little bit later in Mark, where Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We live by one of those two anthems. It's about me or it's about Jesus. And in short, the cost of discipleship is denial of self and obedience to the Father God, saying yes to Jesus, yes to God. And following Jesus may cost you your life, like it did John. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you hurt over misunderstanding. It may cost you jobs or opportunities or popularity or influence. But following Jesus will have a cost. It will for every single one of us. This is why Jesus, in the gospel according to Luke, asked us to count up the cost. He said, consider what it means to follow me. Consider the cost. Because everything has a cost. A few months ago, our family was in New York City. When I was talking about it, we just took a backpack. We went to New York City, and it was great to move around the city like that. We were walking by a store one day, and I think it was my daughter said, Dad, can we go in the store? And I looked up, and it was an Amazon Go store. Have you ever been to an Amazon Go store? Okay, this is how it works. Go ahead and show the picture. So you walk in, and there's these little gate things, and you scan your phone. And you walk in, and you pick up whatever you want, and then you walk out. I remember going in and scanning it, and, and I walked in, and I'm looking around. There's no employees that I could see anywhere. So we start grabbing some drinks and food, and... We get to the, the, the exit here, and I'm like, and I walk out, and no one said anything. And we went and we sat outside. I felt like there was someone that was going to come out. And I just, we just collected whatever we wanted, and we just walked out, and then later on, it showed up on my app. Hey, you spent X amount of dollars. I sometimes feel like, we as followers of Jesus are like walking into Amazon Go store. Like, yep, I got my Jesus card. I'm walking in. I'm getting all the good salvation and worship and prayer and some Bible and some encouragement and some friends and groups and da, 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 da. And then I walk out and I'm like, I got it. But we don't know what the cost is. Like, I didn't know what the cost was when I left. Thankfully, it wasn't too much. But, but following Jesus here is different. There's a cost to following Jesus. There is a high call. There's a high cost. And Jesus said, you need to count the cost. And we ask ourselves the question, is it worth it? I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. Do we feel like this call to follow Jesus is worth the cost? In Mark, yes, the disciples were sent. Yes, their lives were changed. And yes, John the Baptist was killed for his faith, along with so many others. Jesus as well. This passage in Mark that we look at is really a gut check to all who follow Jesus. Is that it's not all perfect and easy and wonderful and great. It's hard. It's hard to deny yourself. 
It's hard to acknowledge sin. It's hard to walk past that scripture calls us to when we look around and our friends and our family are saying, you're just odd. There's a cost. But it's about the why. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he acknowledges what we stand upon and why we stand. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Saying, be reminded. In which you received and on which you've taken your stand. Notice that the stand is on the gospel. That the stand is upon Jesus. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, to, <clears throat> excuse me, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul said, I want to remind you, this is what we take our stand on. This is what we risk it for. This is the call. This is the cost that you are saying, is it worth it? That Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, that Jesus arose, and that we believe and follow after him. We follow after the word that has been preached. This is primary, this is the focus. As we wrap up, there's a song that was written by a group called the Wren Collective a few years ago. Um, and I want to read the words of this song that you may have heard before. And that you would reflect on these words Maybe something would speak to you. It says, and I'm saying yes to you and no to my desires. I'll leave myself behind and follow you. I'll walk the narrow road because it leads me to you. I'll fall, but grace will pick me up again. I've counted up the cost. Oh, I've counted up the cost. Yes, I've counted up the cost. And you are worth it. I do not need safety as much as I need you. You're dangerous, but Lord, you're beautiful. I'll chase you through the pain. I'll carry my cross because real love is not afraid to bleed. Jesus, take my all. Take my everything. I've counted up the cost. And you are worth it. So I ask this this morning. Have we counted up the cost? Have we considered the cost of following Jesus? Or have we just grabbed what is easy and comfortable and just allowing that to fuel us just for that short time? And is it worth it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've called us to count the cost. Lord Jesus, you've called us to repent and to follow after you. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, it begins with salvation by saying yes to you, by trusting in the finished work, the cross of Jesus, and following after you. And so Lord, today, that whether it's the first time someone says yes to you, or whether it is the 8,000th time that we say yes to you, just pray in this moment God, that we would confess sin that we have allowed to 
to lay in our life that has allowed us to, we've allowed to rule, that we've just looked for the easy and the good, and that counted the reality of what it means to sacrifice and surrender. So Lord, in this moment, that we would confess whatever sin or sins that we've allowed, and that in this moment we would truly repent, we would grieve that sin, we would commit to walk away from that. Not because of what we do, but because of your healing power, God. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who walk in the utmost surrender to you, fully committed followers. Lord, I thank you that you meet us in the low points, in the, the darkness, in the pain. <clears throat> and Lord, you bring us from that. Lord, you bring about healing and hope. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us, and that there's not a sin that's too deep or, or too uh, far for you to not touch it with your grace. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the way that you have sent your disciples and you send us. And Lord, you celebrate with us. And Lord, I thank you too that you are there, God, in these moments of cost, that you carry us, you minister to us. And Lord, that you bring us up with strength that only you have. So Father, this week, I pray that you would send us in a mighty way God, to reflect your light and your love. We pray this all in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen.